Here's Johnny. I'll be back. And you will know my name is the Lord. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, home skillets, and moon over my hammies. Welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one podcast stop for movies, madness, moxie, and tonight, many exploding vampires. This episode is the first in a three-parter covering the Blade trilogy. Naturally, we're, we're going to start at the beginning and work towards the end, so Blade 1, in case anyone was confused by what's going on here. I'm your host, Cody, and joining me are a pair of eh, technically daywalkers, although the point can't actually be proven since I've only seen them at night. And in nightmares. Mike Napier, say hello. I'm just jealous of Deacon Frost's hair. And who isn't? And Jamie Lewis. I was actually under the impression we were talking about the Spike Blade TV series, and I am not prepared for this. You know, that's a great point. Almost everyone has forgotten that there was a Blade TV series. Even though for a long time, I think it was actually included in all of like the trilogy DVD sets. Like they just threw it in there. Or at least somewhere, to, episode. somewhere to put it. Also, a little known fact, but uh, Jamie's nickname in high school was Sticky Fingers. <laughs> oh, not for cool reasons. Can I ask uh, a question? Oh, yes. When we planned this, did we know it was this was the anniversary year for Blade? Oh, God, no. I don't remember why we picked this. <laughs> okay, then. So we are accidentally timely. That's good. That's the box office pulp way. <laughs> To yeah. fail yeah. upwards. Look, everything has an anniversary. We just happen to get lucky. Well, the other day we did show Alex Transformers the movie on its anniversary and didn't find out until we were watching it. Oh, man. Did he cry? Yes. That's fine. Especially when we watched G.I. Joe the movie right afterwards. <laughs> well, unfortunately, we need more lasers in the show. Uh, I don't know if you want to edit in some sound effects, but uh, that would spruce things up. There we go. Now we've got gripping entertainment. I was a man once. <laughs> so besides not picking Blade because it's an anniversary movie, why did we pick Blade? That was not rhetorical. I'm hoping you guys have input here. So <laughs> we don't. So this is awkward now. Oh, boy. Why it was we a like Blade? weird choice because I, I love Blade 2 is really where I'm at. Blade 2 is amazing. And I don't pay as much attention to Blade 1. I've never even seen Blade 3. So going back and, and watching all the movies to prep myself for this series, I realized Blade is uh, not given enough due for what it is. It's very bloody. It's trying to actually be a bit of a horror movie. It doesn't skimp on its action for its uh, lower budget. And it's a lot of fun. And for a movie made so long ago, it doesn't feel that way. So I, I feel like we kind of backed into a good choice. Not necessarily that we made it knowingly or decided. Oh, yeah. didn't. Yeah, it's very strange. Like, in preparation for this, I watched Blade for the first time since I was a kid. Maybe for the first time since it came out. And I was blown away with how relatively ageless it is. Like, this is a movie made in 1997 that feels like it was made in 2013. Especially if you look at the lack of superhero movies around that time. The couple that came after this haven't aged nearly as well I this mean, is this... one year after batman and robin somehow whoa that's weird to think about yeah i kind of had a mind gap after batman returns like i just forgot the other ones came out uh 
But I mean, contemporary wise, what do we have? I mean, the Marvel movies really didn't start until after this. We got X-Men, what, two years later, 99, 2000, 2000 even. And as much as I enjoy the X-Men franchise, the first one has a lot of rough spots going back to watch it now. Like Hugh Jackman looks like a completely different person. <laughs> the CGI water people don't quite work. There's there, there's some hinky stuff involved in that, which isn't to say Blade is perfect, but for a film that was kind of a trendsetter, really, it, it doesn't have too many weird spots that need to be ironed out or would be ironed out if it were remade today. There's there's like an aesthetic in the late nineties. Um, I, I find Blade, the first Blade, to be like right there next to Dark City, that weird oh, yeah. neo-noir action horror thing that they had going on for a very brief period. Like Blade <laughs> kind of falls into that category. But going through the commentary, they do mention the emphasis on the technical look of the movie and preserving that through making their prints. Uh, I, I believe somewhere in there they mentioned like they were originally told by the studio they only had the money to film like 20 really nice prints for uh, reviewing in major cities. Leech bypass, yeah. Yeah, and and they were pissed about that because, no, they wanted the movie to look good everywhere. If you were seeing it in Chicago, it should look just as good as if you're seeing it in the middle of Wisconsin or if you're seeing it in California or if you're seeing it in Kansas. And to that end, I was really impressed. You pop that movie in a Blu-ray player and it looks phenomenal. Gorgeous. Yeah. There's so many movies that are 20 years old that do not look good. and, and this one, the black levels are really good. It just, it looks like a lot of care was put into it, which again is amazing. I think, what, if you're going off like the Wikipedia article, the budget was something like $40 million, if I'm remembering right, which was decent, but it, it's not, you know, hell, what was Speed? Speed was probably like a $60 million production or something like that. And that didn't have any vampires. And that was also a few <laughs> that years we know. That we know of. So. We know what Keanu's been getting up to the past few years. There could be vampires. <laughs> So just the look of the movie itself is really cool. Like it just looks slick still, which goes a long way in making the movie, uh, you know, kind of ageless. Yeah, there's something to be said about Norrington's style. It's something that's wholly unique to just Blade, to just that movie. And of course, it helps that Norrington did nothing pretty much afterwards. But um, <laughs> like it's it's a very slick, stylized, heightened reality kind of world, but. Norrington has design aesthetic for things like they talk about a little bit in the commentary. If you actually pay attention, I think it adds to the vibe of the movie a lot where all of the weapons and just various rooms and just, you know, the car that even the world of the vampires, everything has to be functional and has an industrial feel to it. Including Chris Christopherson's leg. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Even right down to the, the, the vampire temple they're in at the end of the movie. Like, it's a fucking, like, vampiric ancient temple and shit underneath this random-ass city. But even that doesn't feel like a like a set. It actually feels like something that exists. And I think that butts up against, you know, like, the, the techno club vibe the rest of the movie has <laughs> in a really interesting way. Right, because that should be the number one thing to date your movie. Like, hey, let's have a scene at a rave. Let's have a lot of drum and bass in the soundtrack. Like all that stuff should really put you pretty firmly in one time period. Uh, Another thing I think that really helps is the way the action is choreographed and filmed. You can tell a majority of what's going on when Blade is doing his stunts. It's it's kind of refreshing because only a few years later, another David Goyer uh, vehicle 
Batman Begins would make it very difficult to see just what the hell was happening. It's two very different approaches to how you do action. And uh, I'm very much a fan of being able to have these little bit more open takes and seeing all the punches being thrown to figure out exactly what the hell is happening. Oh, yeah. And it helps, too, that Wesley Snipes is is a god when it comes to action posing. (laughs) Every time he finishes a move, he knows, like, if you took a still of this, you could draw it into a comic book. And so he always finishes so crisp and, like... (laughs) In a weirdly theatrical, stagey kind of way, he'll you know point a gun or tilt a sword or just the way he lands and looks. Every one of his actions is essentially the superhero landing that Deadpool makes fun of, and it's brilliant. <laughs> it's it's like <laughs> I don't understand why everyone isn't trying to do this in superhero movies. Sure, it's not necessarily realistic in any way, but it makes like everything he does seem so much cooler and more iconic. Well, the impressive thing is Snipes does the poses while still maintaining his level of accuracy to fighting like it's wesley snipes does not get enough credit for the level of dedication he brought to this and so many other roles like like i've never seen someone be more of a bona fide movie star and then just fade away so quickly And I think he, he deserves all the props in the world for the dedication he brought to the first two Blade movies, because this was at a time when being technically a superhero was not the coolest thing in the world. Right. And it was it was interesting, too, that he even decided to stay with comic books, because for a long time he was being considered for a Black Panther movie. And when that just couldn't get traction, he said, well, what else do you have? Instead of just going away from the entire thing, he was he was happy to stick with something that at the time could be viewed as just kind of campy kids flick action. Oh, yeah. Well, like, Goyer had to convince the studio to do Blade as an actual movie and not a spoof comedy. Because that's <laughs> what they wanted. How would, how would, what would that be? Like, a kind of funny version of Vampire in Brooklyn? Or, I don't... If, if you look at the old Tomb of Dracula comics, I could easily see that just being Black Dynamite. In the early 90s, they, being... the studio wanted uh, LL Cool J long before Goyer ever came on. Yeah, I had read that and assumed somebody just was fucking around with IMDb because it doesn't seem right. No, I mean, hell, Goyer has even said that he was tried to be, the studio tried to convince him to make Blade white briefly. So, yeah, I think all cards are on the table there. Going off of that. It was really interesting for me going back to rewatch this because, you know, you don't catch it as a kid. You don't understand the history around it. But the film definitely has all these roots in like black exploitation cinema. Oh, yeah. But the film itself, I think, underplays a lot of its racial elements. Uh, Not that you can't find them, but I think you have to do a little bit more reaching other than saying, yeah, it's clearly an evil white guy who's evil to black guys because he hates black guys. There, there's some sort of racial stuff going on with, you know, the pure blooded vampires rejecting the the newly converted vampires and all of them against blade but in my mind that's more analogous to like new money old money and no money so it's more of like a culture kind of deal more so than a racial kind of deal well goyer was very concerned with class when writing this screenplay that's why it's that he makes very sure to ship to show the audience blade drives from the nice part of the city where the vampires are to the piece of shit industrial side where he lives. 
<laughs> which is a little silly because I think he follows that comment up by saying like, oh yeah, the rich vampires just can't be bothered to drive out there. <laughs> that's a silly little world building element like well we would stop van helsing from murdering us but he lives over on the wrong side of the tracks it's udo kier cody (laughs) has dragonetti the greatest character name in history (laughs) yeah i it's funny the blade universe is the only place i've really seen vampires played in this way in virtually every other story they're shown as representing the old world. Whereas in both this and Blade 2, the old world is shown as being humans. Vampires are fascism and rigidity and blue-bloodedness incarnate. Like in a weird way, they're more modern than the humans are portrayed. Yeah, and there's the, the little touches they do to make the vampires seem more modern. Like they, they get rid of the idea that crosses can harm them. Yeah, it's silver bullets or silver in general, steaks or sunlight, and they're allergic to garlic. They they don't have to sleep in coffins filled with dirt of their homeland or anything like that. They don't even really have to sleep during the day. There's plenty of scenes of vampires out during daylight. They're just, you know, underneath racing armor or they have on apparently SPF 5000. <laughs> Plus, there's scenes of like Frost listening to the techno music in his spare time and using a, a really clunky looking interface to scan in documents on his computer. Like, it's vampires who aren't afraid of using technology, which is pretty radical at the time. Well, that's what I find so interesting about Deacon Frost's entire motivation, which was always lost on me whenever I would think back on this movie before, which is Frost sees the modern age of vampires and knows this is all bullshit. Like, Deacon Frost wants to be an old-school vampire-ass vampire, (laughs) and is the only one who wants that. Yeah, the old guard vampires in this movie, it's almost shocking watching it now because you realize they are so spineless. Frost shits all over them in their meetings. Uh, Every time they tell him not to do something, he just does it anyways. There's, like, no repercussions for him. They don't even think about like offing the guy if if this were like an old school mobster movie they would have him shot dead but in in this new vampire era eh, we'll let him we'll let him we'll let him until one scene he just randomly has their leader captured and decides to burn him to death it's it's a weird choice but kind of refreshing that the old guard is actually very ineffective in their in their ruling so you can get why frost is so opposed to how they do things the fact that they let him walk all over him uh, them just kind of proves all of his points and thinking. That's why I love the choice of Frost's entire thing being that he's a turned vampire as opposed to a born one. Because unlike all of the pure-blooded vampires, his idea of what a vampire is comes from pop culture. <laughs> so even though there's nothing old-fashioned about Deacon Frost at all, he's a snot-nosed little brat, he knows it, like deep down, nah, this is this is all stupid. We should be cool. <laughs> Plus, we get more pizzazz from his kind of character anyway, and in, in the way he shows signals. Like, not only does he take Udo Kier's vampire and expose him to the sun, which that was a very gnarly effect. He didn't just start on fire. Like, apparently, his body decided to just explode all over the place, <laughs> ruptured, tear apart, and then didn't then burn away. Uh, but before that, they they humiliate him by ripping out his fangs. And then presenting them back to the council. Like, oh, that's that's a pretty clever idea in a vampire film. What has to be more emasculating to a vampire than having your fangs ripped out? It's very ceremonial uh, as well. 
And you do not get more vampire movie meta than having your villain murder Udo Kier. <laughs> it's a new guard, goddammit. And just goddamn is Deacon Frost just one of the best villains ever. Really? Such an underrated performance by Stephen Dorff? Uh, plus, it's, it's nice that we get uh, Donald Logue as the backup villain who... Well, not actually being useful in any way isn't treated as like this bumbling guy that Frost should have murdered and wants to murder, but for some reason is preventing himself from murdering. There, there's the scene in there where he, you know, picks Logan up and he's basically like, hey, man, I need you. And it seems sincere. I don't know. Maybe he's just fucking with him, but it seems like he actually has a, a certain amount of friendship for Logue. And he, he wants his character to remain in the film and he'd be bummed out if he died. Like, that's his friend, not just his henchman. So it doesn't matter that he fucks up a couple of times and always gets his ass kicked by Blade. It's just, oh, well, that's my buddy. We'll get him some new hands. He'll be fine. <laughs> that's what I think is interesting is that Frost doesn't have underlings. He just has his buds. Yeah, that makes him so engaging. It's like you've so rarely in action movies see villains that have actual relationships with the sub villains. Yeah, and it does paint a nice little portrayal like a the difference of how he interacts with his familiars versus his friends. You know, he doesn't turn on his own friends and murder any of them, but yeah, the, the cop familiar that fucks up, he has a couple of chances to keep talking to them. When he doesn't shut up, he just decides to kill him right there. And Damn you, Krieger. It's that idea of eh, people screw them, but vampires, eh, my fellow half-bloods, I don't want to hurt. Okay, can we talk for a moment just how brilliant the Blade universe's use of familiars is. Like the one vampire thing to actually do something with the Renfield concept. <laughs> That's not just a pure copy. I mean, it's it's frustrating looking at the vampire field because 90% of it is just, hey, can we do Dracula again or just do some sort of twist <laughs> on something from Dracula? Like the and, third movie. Yeah, and the rest is just, how do we not be Dracula? Which is refreshing. I mean, we've done Dracula for a couple hundred years now. It's perfectly fine to say, hey, let's try something new. And I have to appreciate that Blade doesn't try and undo everything that came before in Vampires, but is not just settling for, hey, let's make Dracula the bad guy this time. Let's let's uh, update the concept of familiars. Let's just not make this a weird, stupid hypnotism thing. We'll get rid of some of the folklore stuff and make this like a viral infection. We'll make this a more updated concept. We can modernize vampires. We can add a class struggle and flesh these out more than just making it some sort of weird fear of immigrant kind of thing. While still retaining the ancient, um, almost religious aspect to them, I think it's interesting that so much of Blade vampirism has entered popular culture. Oh, yeah. It's, it's forgotten how out of fucking nowhere Goyer's concept of vampires work. It's not like the, these are based on the comic book Blade vampires yeah. who are just some vampires. <laughs> this is from the ground up. Clearly inspired a lot from I Am Legend, since that's all Goyer wanted to do sequel-wise. He just was never able to. <laughs> like, every, every fucking Blade sequel is supposed to take place in the future, but... Like the biological you know, when, aspect it, of them. Yeah, I remember that blowing my mind when I saw this movie as a kid because, yeah, that was the first time anyone had done that. I never, I had never really thought of approaching it that way. Wait, you can do science vampires? <laughs> it doesn't have to be some magic bullshit. And God, speaking of this movie's influence, 
I'm very curious what you guys think of this. Because I had kind of a revelation revisiting the, these movies. I'd always remembered the Blade movies as being very good. But their Achilles heel being that tonally they kind of blend in with a lot of other action movies from the late 90s and early 2000s. But rewatching them, I realized, no, I had it backwards. Blade created the aesthetic of the early 2000s. Oh, yeah. Like pretty much every action movie beyond this was either riffing on The Matrix or ripping off Blade or ripping off of Blade. Like Triple X is a Blade movie. Constantine is a Blade movie. Oh, yeah. And you could even say, I don't know how the production schedule would line up or anything, but there is a, a short CGI bullet dodging bit in Blade that could be seen as inspiration for the Matrix bullet dodging. It's it's not filmed in the same style, but you get that idea of characters so fast they can skip past bullets. And we now have CGI to make that a thing we can see in slow-mo. I, so, I, I don't know if it's intentional at the time, but I remember I, at the time that the Matrix felt very much like an answer to Blade. Like It felt like the sequel we weren't getting. Robot vampires. We should have known. They're going to drink all of our oil. No. no, that was a cartoon. A vampire that turns people into machines? <laughs> Robovires. No, nah, it doesn't quite roll off the tongue. I'll work. I'll get back to you. But if we can go back to the cast for a second, I, I, we've kind of touched on Donald Logue, but I, I do want to spend more time just talking about what a treat it is to watch that character go. <laughs> <laughs> just improvising everything he does. I like how he was like Spicoli in Fast Times. They were just like, quick, 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 write more scenes with him. <laughs> like he gets turns being absolutely terrifying. Like when he pops out of the morgue and he's in this burnt, crisp, flayed state, but his eyes are almost pure white and he's just <laughs> running around ripping throats out. That's a Takashi oh. scene. <laughs> God, that's wonderful. That's true horror. Uh, and, and then we get scenes where he's talking about being a naughty vampire god, which is hilarious. Not a month goes parts. by where I don't say that at least once. <laughs> and then we have the running joke of him just constantly acquiring new hands. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a character you can do that with. Right, like, somehow they managed to take the annoying, useless sidekick and make him someone I want to see more of. Like, I was very disappointed when they finally murdered him, because like, oh no, he should have been back for the sequel. Uh question about the mythology is he regrowing those arms or my interpretation as a kid was he was just murdering people and then sewing their arms onto his body and they being a vampire he could just make that work regenerating damn he grows arms fast i like you the see idea it slowly, of him like you great. see it kind of getting like stronger and he, uh, and he first loses the first one yeah. it's like deadpool see i always had this idea in my kid uh, kid mind that he was just like finding humans ripping their arms off and then if you just kind of like plunked it into the wound of a vampire you could just acquire those limbs i'm Which sure they can do that too think of the fun concept you could have with that there's got to be a vampire out there somewhere with like 10 arms doing like a goro thing just because he keeps stealing arms from people <laughs> and sticking them into holes he's cutting out what a himself. dick that would be he could probably have 10 dicks too oh, i heard just... that motherfucker had like 30 goddamn dicks <laughs> that's just what the uh the record keeper does you just can't see it because of the gut <laughs> So they can go to Miyazaki territory. There could be a vampire with like four arms who's just slowly assembling coal shoots. I'm sorry. All I can imagine of a vampire is like collecting dicks and just having like a bodily key ring of dicks. So that way any lovers can choose which one they prefer. Oh, that's that's so convenient. I enjoyed the idea of a dick vampire janitor uh, who just has a key ring of dicks and he's just sorting through them for the right fit. 
I feel like we're just <laughs> adding on. I feel that like we're just making the, the vampire porno that never came to be. <laughs> I like my idea more when it was about like vampires with extra arms, but it's a lot funnier with dicks. Everything's funnier with dicks. <laughs> I don't even want to talk about the rest of the episode now. This is a fun concept. I think we should only explore this exclusively for the rest of all of the Blade episodes. <laughs> Uh, we're not going to have that much to say for Blade Trinity, so we'll have to vamp a little. We'll, we'll go back on that, yeah. We just uh, talk about the history the... of Deadpool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to go back to the cast, though, uh, moving down the list, we have Chris Christopherson's wonderful portrayal of uh, Whistler. And the thing I like about it so much is typically in a movie where you have a strong, silent hero, they pair you up with a, uh, a Rob Schneider kind of talky, wacky, comic relief, annoying guy to act as a you know, an opposites attract type deal in the partnership. And in this one, we basically get Grumpy Blade's grandfather. <laughs> and it's great. You basically get two of the same guy, only one is slightly more talky. So it's, I love weird. that dynamic. It works so well. And I'm surprised more movies don't do that. You don't have to have good cop and bad cop in the buddy movie. Make them both bad cops. See what happens. That is weird to think that technically Whistler is comic relief. He does get some of those lines. Oh, yeah. It's so grumpy, though. That's that's the genius of it. And immediately just endears you to the character, both mm. on performance and just how, I don't know, out of left field the character's existence is almost. And it helps you, uh, helps endear you to Blade. Because just oh, the yeah. fact they have a relationship. <laughs> that tells you so much about him. Yeah. <laughs> Someone puts up Blade... with this guy. Yeah, because Blade's not going to tell you anything about his personality. You just have to infer that from the fact that he keeps Whistler around. <laughs> I mean, there's so much said in that simple exchange between Karen and Blade where she says, oh, you have a lot of love for him, don't you? And he's just like, eh, we have an arrangement. <laughs> it's like there, that's that's the entire movie right there in those two lines. Well, we, we do need Whistler to soften up Blade anyways, because if you pay attention to Blade's actions towards anyone else in the movie he's pretty much a giant dick like he, he repeatedly uses other characters as bait so he can move up the vampire food chain to murder more important vampires he doesn't seem that concerned with anyone's well-being except for whistler and even then a lot of times he's kind of like eh, he'll figure it out uh we'll meet up later just uh, he won't get killed i'm sure he'll be fine and I assume he just pushes Karen out of a window between movies. <laughs> That's probably, I assume. Like, I have to go to a different country now. Goodbye. Push. <laughs> then flies to the moon. Um, it's something that goes, I think, underrated about Snipes' performance, which is the idea of Blade turning himself into a machine that exists only to kill one part of him. And it's through the, act, through the course of the first film that he begins to actually loosen up and embrace the that he does actually does have a human side uh, that, of course, will come more to fruition in, in Blade 2. But I think the idea of Blade being emotionally shut down on purpose to make it so he only has one one reason to exist and through losing Whistler in the course of the first film and through meeting Karen and through, of course, the action of literally killing his mother... He's able to kind of let go of all of all of that. And the fact that Snipes can portray that without doing much of anything, I think, is really impressive. To rewind on something you just mentioned, Blade killing his own mom, it just occurred to me that this is essentially Batman choosing to become Batman by murdering his parents. 
<laughs> Pretty much. Like, I can't become this superhero unless this is out of the way. Sorry, mom and pop. Well, that's the uh, that's the magic of Blade. Like, you have this almost blank check with the character to be as ludicrously dark and brutal as you want because it's Blade. If Blade is going to learn a lesson, he is going to learn that lesson under the most horrible circumstances possible. Because <laughs> that's I've always been fascinated for years and years with how seemingly nobody else but Goyer and Wesley Snipes together can make Blade interesting. Because they've tried several times, like both on television, with the anime, with a couple of different reboots of the comics to make Blade work, and it never does. And honestly, I think the X factor they're missing is just a simple truth. Blade is fascinating to watch because he is a hero in the loosest possible terms. <laughs> Blade is just a supervillain who fights vampires. Yeah. That was, yeah, definitely one of the things that caught me about the character. Um, the other uh, the other day, there was rumors going around, and I swear this will all connect in the end, so let me <laughs> let me uh, give myself some rope here. Uh, there was a rumor going around that Idris Elba was being considered to play James Bond. And on Twitter, Duncan Jones made a comment saying, I don't think this is a good idea. Hear me out. And explained, I'm worried that if they make a black actor, uh, James Bond, they'll in a weird way, whitewash the character. And instead of making James Bond a lunatic psychopath or a sociopath, they would make Bond a kinder, gentler man because they wouldn't want to portray a black actor as being, you know, one step away from being one of the bad guys. He's just employed by the right people. And I, I think it's interesting in Blade, they don't have that at all. They're not trying to put Blade up as like, oh, he's a black representation of superheroes. We have to make him ultra clean and good and a force for righteousness. Blade does a lot of questionable stuff. He beats up people. He tortures them. He kills everyone he can. <laughs> he has fun doing it. Uh, at one point, he robs a guy and mentions like, hey, this operation doesn't pay for itself. We're not the March of Dimes. They allow him to be a real character and to have darkness and bad qualities. And they're not trying to clean him up because he has to be a representative, which is more refreshing. They allow him to be a character and kind of put the race stuff to the side and let him be fully fleshed out. Instead of making him some sort of token. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's not trying to save the human race by killing vampires. He's just killing fucking vampires. That's it. He's driven by pretty much hate. And this is his bloodlust being expressed in another way. It's, it's not a noble pursuit. It's mostly a, <laughs> well, it's either this or I could become a terrorist. And that goes like right down to the dialogue where there's a directness to the way Blade communicates that you never see even in the darkest of heroes. Even... Somebody like Batman or even the Punisher is going to speechify a little bit. Blade just says no and walks <laughs> away. Blade points. Blade or, just kills a dude. And the very, the very best example of this is at the end, he doesn't have like a great speech moment for Frost. He injects him with the serum to basically kill him. And while he's bloating up to explode, he just <laughs> utters the immortal line. Some motherfuckers are always trying to up, ice skate uphill. <laughs> that's like the most he gets for sermonizing or monologuing just that little quip after it's too late to stop him i am obsessed with the story of why that's in there just because snipes read the script looked at frost and said man that motherfucker's trying to escape it uphill <laughs> and then goyer fell over and said that's in the movie now <laughs> we have a new scene we have a new scene stop the presses there's an addendum to the script 
And that's the thing about Blade that I, th- I think kind of gets ignored as another reason why uh, the character never seems to work when Snipes isn't portraying him, which is there's a weird kind of smart-ass humor to Blade that is so deeply, deeply deadpan that I think Snipes may be the only actor on Earth who can pull it off. Oh, yeah. Right. Like that moment where he's kung fu fighting the vampires in the third act and then just stops to pump himself up like a boxer and then kicks their ass. <laughs> like that's just something Blade did to make Blade smile on the inside. <laughs> or in the beginning, whenever he nails that vampire in the sword and just goes <clears throat> and pumps his fist to no one in particular, just to Blade. The fact that Wesley Snipes can pull off those ridiculous thin sunglasses and not look like a dork shows how cool he is. And and no one else, I think, could make those glasses work and no one else could make Blade work in a similar fashion. There's just something about him that embodies the character and has the confidence to pull all of those things off. And it's amazing just to see the level of dedication. Like, that's the thing that surprised me the most about uh, researching the first two Blade movies is because when I think of Wesley Snipes and his relationship with the franchise, I just think of those stories from Blade Trinity. But it's fascinating. It's fascinating listening to his commentary where, no, Blade is the most important goddamn thing in the world to Wesley Snipes in 1998. This is his chance to be Batman. Yeah, the archival stuff. You can tell how into it is and how much thought he's put into all the little quirks of the character. He, He definitely took the job incredibly seriously for the first two outings which makes it so confusing that you hear all of the behind the scenes gossip for part three but we'll we'll get around to that in a later episode <laughs> yeah i remember getting to the credits and seeing you know executive producer wesley snipes and kind of rolling my eyes and thinking oh yeah did he ever produce that movie but no exec wesley snipes was totally a on the scene producer and made a lot of really important calls throughout the production of the movie like he like he was almost co-director, but in a way that wasn't destructive like it was in Trinity. <laughs> like it says a lot that in the commentaries, everyone talks about how great Wesley is and it's Norrington where they're all kind of awkwardly <laughs> sidestepping drama. Yeah. I, is, is there ever been like an official reason listed why he was not brought, brought back on for Blade 2? He turned it down. Yeah, I, that's what I saw. But it seems weird because what did he do instead? The Extraordinary Gentleman. Oof. 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 That movie is one long collection of woofs set to music. (laughs) Yeah. And this movie really hammers home just what a genius director we lost whenever Norrington just went into movie jail. Because (laughs) this is like uh, Goyer says it in the commentary. This is a young Cameron you're looking at. This is one of the next great directors, and this is the should be the movie that makes him famous. Yeah, some of the little pieces he fixated on were, were fascinating, because who else would think the same way? Like, in the beginning with the blood rave, the way he decided he wanted to film it to make all the blood coming down look like bits of particles rather than a steady stream of, of blood flowing down like rain. I never would have thought of that. I imagine most directors would have gone down and just said, okay, whatever, we don't need strobe lights, we don't need to bring anything extra, just light this so we can catch the fact that there's blood coming out of the sprinklers and we'll move on with our lives. But if you pay attention to that scene, there's an otherworldly quality when you just see the isolated little blobs of blood suspended in the air for a fraction of a second, highlighted by the strobes. And it's brilliant, but, you know, 
who else would have come up with that? I think that's what makes it kind of genius. And yeah, there's, there's little touches like that all throughout the movie. Yeah, it's not something you'd expect to see in a comic book movie in 1997. No, it's something something you'd expect just based on Norrington's background. Like, oh, he'll probably just bring up a, like a lot of great special effects or make everything look really slick. Or you no, know, he did uh, Death Machine before this, and but Norrington showed off that he was an incredible visual storyteller. The things he's able to get across just with his camera work, his design aesthetics. He's not doing things just for uh, the sake of him. He, he's able to really utilize the pace of Goyer's script and create a, a really interesting rhythm. Yeah, Goyer and Norrington seem so made for each other. It, it blows my mind that they were not regular collaborators after this. Also, since we're talking about that opening scene, I probably should have mentioned this at the beginning of the episode. When I think of Blade, my first thought is always that sequence. Because whenever I was a kid and that movie was first released on VHS, my best friend, who was like eight at the time, he should not have been watching this movie. His parents he got too it went to a blood rave. <laughs> his parents got up, rented it for him like the day it came out. And the next day he was telling me all about it. And he, all he wanted to describe was that one scene. And I thought he was lying because my first reaction was, no, no, there's not a nightclub full of vampires with sprinklers that spray blood. That's not something you're allowed to put in a movie. <laughs> well, besides, I, I God, I love the amount of blood in this film. They went hard on that <laughs> R rating. It's rare to find a vampire film that has that much blood. When a vampire bites into somebody, you get Tarantino levels of gore just gushing out of them. Walls are splattered. People have their faces painted. Uh, most actors end up being head to toe in blood at some point. It's great. Even today, I don't think we see that much blood. And this is like actual uh, movie blood. You know, it's not just CGI stuff they've thrown in there. I, I love that. I love the physical touch of having that goop everywhere. And nothing looks like. Blade blood. No. Blade has the nastiest blood in cinema. <laughs> God, I, I wish I could find the video that was discussing this, but there was some guy talking about the differences in Hollywood blood and how each director has their own preference, so they have to mix up like different vats. Like if you're doing a Sam Raimi movie, you end up with like black blood, <clears throat> so you have to use a different level of food coloring. Or if you're doing uh, you know, something like a Romero blood, you want to make it like candy red. And just the way they have the consistency too, like Sam Raimi's blood is this almost a sticky black slime in cases, whereas a Romero blood would seem like it's paint, which I think it might have been paint for Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> it's just the fascinating little differences directors take towards how blood should look on camera and the radical changes it makes for mixing up the stuff. Whereas nowadays, it's it's I'm sure there's a lot of direction put into how CGI blood should appear, but I, I don't think you get quite the same variety because most people are trying to make realistic blood that won't tip off the sensors. I miss Blade Blood is what I'm trying to get at here. I want <laughs> I want more squibs and just practical blood for actors to trip on and slip over. Maybe it's just me, but Blade Blood has this unique quality of looking like it was actually inside of a human being. Oh, which yeah. Which movie Blood never does. It looks real. They, got so dirty. they went through a lot of extras. <laughs> How would you even do that? Would you just like take the extras and throw them into one of those giant uh, onset fans? You just have the Gemini killer do it? Blade, we're on to you. 
We'll find your secrets out. <laughs> That's actually why Wesley Snipes had to flee the country for a little while. Just people <laughs> asking him Blade questions. <laughs> it wasn't about the taxes at all. It was about the blood. <laughs> Going off of conspiracy theories. It's hard to watch the film these days, and any film these days, and not try and put a modern lens over it. But it, it's so strange watching Blade now and to not think about all the insane conspiracy theorists talking about deep state controlling all of our stuff. <laughs> Considering in this film, that's the plot. There's a vampire deep state that makes everything run the way they want it to. And they own the police and they control everything around you. And they make sure you don't know about their existence. Obviously, that was not what they were going for back in the 90s. But watching it today, it's just another weird level where you're like, oh, God, it's a it's a nightmare universe where... The conspiracists are, are, are correct. They were the ones who guessed it, and we should have believed them. The Draculas are behind it all. <laughs> Welcome to President Dracula. <laughs> that means Dracula won. Uh, it was a rigged election. Does that count? <laughs> Whatever gets the I job could, done. I could do, see. Do you actually count as winning if it's given to you? I don't know. That's that's Yeah, that means you rigged the system, discussion. and you won. That's not winning. That's cheating. That's being given. It's Dracula. I like, the idea. I like the idea of Cody being the one person in the country who contests the election of Dracula because he refuses to believe that Dracula could ever win anything. I demand a recount, President Dracula. Not my president. Not my monster. Look, I want it made very clear. I do not have anything against vampires. It's not what this is about. I like how this makes me the racist. <laughs> Where's Dracula's birth certificate? I, exactly. I thought this was a thing in front of Donald Trump. It turns out I'm on the other end where I'm like one of those ridiculous people who are like, Obama was born in Kenya. Dracula no, no, was born in Transylvania. He's not an American. He can't be my president. He can't sleep in American dirt. That's true. That's the test. I want him to prove it. I've got some American soil on my hand right now. Will he sleep on my dirt? Here's this photo I found of him shaking hands with Frankenstein. <laughs> Dracula's middle name? Bin Laden. Did, did, did we just discover the plot of the new, uh, the new Blade movie? Is this what Goyer has been trying to build towards? This is <laughs> actually it. President Dracula? This is it. This is the Marvel reboot of Blade and what they're going to do. Isn't it kind of amazing they haven't gotten around to rebooting Blade? It's solely because of Snipes, I, I feel like. If Snipes didn't go crazy, I feel like we'd be on our sixth or seventh Blade movie by now. That was just what I kept going. It's, yeah, I, but I, I feel like Marvel totally has the rights now, and they have no problem just doing a clean break from previous versions. As long as it's a different actor, you know, you can hell, look at something like Fury Road. They're able to get away with that. Just uh, no more Mel Gibson. It's fine. Ignore the past ones. It's brand new. I think All, the set... I think this has more to do with just, is Marvel going to make an R-rated movie? Right. Yeah. It seems like the kind of thing they would typically confine to Netflix, but since that whole thing is kind of morphing, I think, with the Disney merger, who knows if they would take it that direction? I don't think it would hurt. I mean, Marvel already has the market cornered. They could probably afford to introduce some R-rated fare that isn't connected to the direct Avengers universe. Hell, just make a boutique label. Avengers Dark or something stupid and just let everyone know like hey these are totally their own thing you don't have to worry about seeing this and Captain America I've always said with very little massaging you can just say the Blade movies already take place in the MCU I mean yeah since they don't really mention anything too specific 
And you already have the hot all the Hydra shit, so vampires also controlling the world isn't that far fetched. <laughs> and what the, the first movie takes place in New Orleans, if I remember right, and then the second one they go overseas. So sure, I mean a majority of the Marvel films seem like they've been focused on the New York area, so they've only covered a very small portion of the country. New York is the only spot in the MCU world not controlled by vampires. Problem solved. <laughs> And really, if you look at the continuity of the Blade series, they're not afraid of retcons. And let's be honest, they can just pretend Trinity never happened. Everyone forgot about that movie as soon as it came out. Yeah, that's true. Are, are you guys advocating for Wesley Snipes to come back and be Blade? Like, old man Blade <laughs> returns in the MCU. If he cleaned up his act. <laughs> hey, what else was he going to do in prison other than get sober? I think they should knock everyone's socks off. They make Blade 4. It's in the MCU. Guillermo del Toro comes back to direct it. His oh, first man. movie after Shape imagine? of Water. Just he comes back <laughs> with that Oscar clout and he's like, hey, everybody, surprise. I'm making an I'm making not only an MCU movie, but it's a Blade sequel. <laughs> no one would see that coming. Exactly. I, I just realized, you know, what's even more far fetched than Snipes? Would Goyer be attached again? That's a good question. I feel like he's got a lot of stank on him right now. True. But uh, most of it comes from his work with DC. So maybe Marvel would welcome him back. You know, he gave them uh, plenty of oomph when they needed it for their Batman series. I feel like it would definitely be floated. <laughs> it's a trial basis. OK, you get to write half the scenes. And if people <laughs> like those half of the scenes when the movie's done, <laughs> we'll let you uh, do more in the next one. And they do it Aquaman style. Like we're going to do two scripts. One of them's going to be yours. <laughs> we'll see if you behave yourself. Other than Krypton, he's uh, unencumbered by DC now, so... Right. It's just one of those weird things to look back on and be like, oh, he really got going because of his connections to Marvel, even if it wasn't like a proper Marvel Studios movie at the time. That guy got started because of a Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. TV movie. That's a hell oh, of a thought. Yeah, that is a weird one. <laughs> you know, I, that's one of those movies that slips from my mind. If someone isn't actively mentioning it to me, it doesn't exist in my head. I'm not trying to forget it. It just it can't be held in my synapses. I'm going to say something controversial here for what it is. Nick Fury, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is fine. I would actually agree with that. Like, it's a TV movie. It tries really fucking hard, though. Like, I, I got to give it a lot of credit. And Hasselhoff is honestly perfectly fine as Nick Fury. It's weird. Yeah. Box office pulp, bringing you the hottest takes of 1994. <laughs> I don't know when that movie came out. 96, I think. Ah, 96. 96 or 97. It's better than Generation X. Yeah. God, that's a weird thought. Goyer went from that to play. <laughs> what a fucking 180. Hey, Dark City? Uh, oh, yeah. I was going to say it's kind of like Kevin Smith's advice. In Hollywood, you fail upwards. Like box office pulp. <laughs> We're not Hollywood enough yet. We need to get more Hollywood. Cue the montage music, and it's just a bunch of like really bitchin' 80s synth music, and we're putting on backwards hats, ski pants. Oh, it's cool. Ski pants. It is funny, with the one-two punch of Dark City and Blade, Gore was inadvertently king of that aesthetic. Really? Two polar opposite directors. <laughs> God, could you have imagined Alex Proyas's Blade? It would have been so beautiful. <laughs> That's true. That'd been really interesting if they just swapped directors in some alternate universe. All things are equal. It's just those guys just changed jobs. 
Norrington's dark city would have been so hard-assed. <laughs> I'd been all right with that. That'd be interesting. Just a stranger shooting up. <laughs> Meanwhile, Blade has an operatic score and everything's in slow motion. <laughs> Going off the slow motion, there there are a few little bits and bobs that bother me a little bit about returning to Blade. One, I mean, it's it's unavoidable for the time period, but the earlier CGI and their dependence on it, not <laughs> phenomenal. There's some not good stuff there. Oh, you mean you don't like Deacon Frost becoming Capri Sun? <laughs> <laughs> a little better than the original effect. At least most of the um, the dustings are actually weirdly hold up okay. Some yeah, most of fine. them, like half of them, but yeah. Some of the fire effects are pretty good. Um, there, there's some weird tonal moments too, uh, like when they introduce Pearl, and one that's a fascinating concept of a really morbidly obese vampire. How often do we get that? But then the scene turns into like this weird comedy thing where Pearl farts immediately as soon as Blade walks into the room, followed by Pearl being tortured to death by UV light. <laughs> it's a Goyer. weird, weird flip in tone in that scene. Goyer is guilty of some weird, weird comedic choices in all of his movies. <laughs> well, in some of the little scripting bits, uh, I guess you could construe this as part of Blade's traps. But it seems a little weird that he tortures Quinn, lights him up, and then follows him to the hospital and murder him there. <laughs> that, that was something that kind of startled me whenever I was watching it. Like, everything that happens in this movie happens because Blade failed to kill that one dude. Yeah. Because <laughs> he was just experimenting that time and thought that he would have died. Well, no, he even says, like, hey, say hi to Frost for me, and then... <laughs> It makes it seem like he's aware that Quinn wouldn't have died in that situation. <laughs> so maybe he was using it as a trap to see if Frost would come down to visit him in the hospital. But that's weird. Also, you had the stuff later on where Frost reveals he knows everything about Blade, which is sudden and surprising and weird that he didn't do anything about Blade beforehand if he's been watching him for years. I guess he truly did not want to drive to the other side of town. It was just too much <laughs> until like he eventually started messing with his final plans. Honestly, I always kind of got the impression that Frost was fine with Blade doing his thing. Like he was keeping all the other vampires distracted while he was, you know, he was building his own machinations. That's actually yeah, kind of how I took it as well. They do mention in in part of the movie that Blade has been hitting Frost's uh, nightclubs. So you would assume that'd be frustrating for him because his typical day to day operation is getting fucked up. And it also hurts his clout with the vampires because it draws more attention. His life would be easier if he just killed Blade, and yet somehow he claims to know everything about him right down to, like, the trap mechanism on his sword. I don't know. I, I think it's a little bit of a writing contrivance, but you're having a good enough time where you can kind of dismiss it. I will say the sword thing, I always just took that as him finding that out whenever he went to Blade's hideout. Like, there, yeah. there must have been some kind of documentation on that or something. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't even call it a plot hole. You could say Quinn told it to him because Quinn saw one of the other vampires have his hand cut apart by it earlier uh, a couple scenes back so sure there there's reasons you could get around that but he knowing blade so thoroughly makes it seem like he's just incredibly lazy for not having done anything about blade <laughs> well it's deacon frost cody a thing <laughs> I, was, I can say he was listening to his <laughs> drum and bass he didn't have time <laughs> well if we're talking about things that are kind of hilarious watching now can we talk about blade in broad daylight the funniest thing in the world <laughs> Just walking around as an action figure, talking to 
SPF 5000 defrost. <laughs> in what is theoretically a very gritty version of New Orleans. <laughs> we should have no room for leather-clad swordsmen, but hey, whatever. <laughs> he must be so hot in that. Oh, God, I can't imagine. That vampire. <laughs> or, uh, or some of this stuff, too, like Blade runs around town, like almost hitting people with his car, pulling into alleyways and parking illegally, <laughs> which is kind of funny because you see people actually react to that. And Blade just kind of go, don't care. Blade kills a cop in front of people. Yeah, or he pulls a gun out and everyone gasps because he's got a gigantic RoboCop gun out. <laughs> and then he just puts it away and everyone goes back to their normal lives like, oh, problem solved. We don't have a crazy gunman. He has some restraint. <laughs> I love how Del Toro used all of that as an excuse to make Blade 2 cartoonier. Like, ah, they're not in the real world anyway. <laughs> Let's just run with it. That's what I love about the the reality of Blade. Is It's just, people always act like Blade was, oh, it's the first comic book movie to take itself seriously in like this real world setting. No, it Blade very clearly has a transition from the real world into Blade World. <laughs> right there in the movie, like, you're not supposed to take this as realistic at all. Well, that's something we'd see in Batman Begins as well. People saying, oh, finally, a realistic Batman movie. It's like, the Tumblr flies, man. <laughs> Goyer does not write realistic superhero movies. He writes cool superhero movies that's the difference <laughs> this is uh, a topic for a much longer episode but the aesthetic uh just the aesthetics of film i think confuse people like if they oh, see yeah. something filmed a certain way they assume that must be the message and in this case it has a, a realistic kind of wallpaper over everything but that's not to say anything in the film is meant to be styled realistically that's that's one problem I have with Nolan fans is that they, they take everything Nolan does and assume, oh, he's aiming for realism. Therefore, all the facts must be perfect. It's like, well, it's still a movie. He's he's trying to make it feel like something that could happen. He's trying to make it feel realistic without sacrificing the fact that it's a movie. Nolan's aiming that's for just, believability. Yeah. Well, it's especially weird with Nolan movies because, I, and not just in Inception, like Nolan's movies kind of, function on a certain dream logic like very little in a nolan movie makes sense if you really sit down and think of every little thing and how everything fits together right. in a weird way they're more comic book than a lot of other comic book movies right but because they have that veneer of realism to them people mistake them as like oh this is it this is the down-to-earth movie that everyone should be making i'm blown away by that i i don't like the shift movies have made away from more surrealist elements or abstract kind of things. There, there's so many where they're basically like, hey, we have to try this, make, if we have to try and make this look like it's real and gritty and grounded, which is a shame because sure, Blade has that, but it's not advocating for it in the same way other more modern films are. Like we mentioned before, the little bits where Blade kind of like fist pumps to himself. Well, it's not to himself. He's doing it to make the audience think he's cool. <laughs> like he's peering through the screen and kind of breaking the fourth wall and that whole realism thing goes out the window for a couple of seconds while he does it. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's entertaining. It's a yeah. movie, so you should have the license to do that kind of stuff. <laughs> That's the golden rule of movies, I feel, is it's a movie. <laughs> yeah, you can really get away with anything. I was um, I was reading uh, Roger Ebert's review of Blade earlier. And, uh, and you're now going to read it in its entirety for the next um, time. Um... <laughs> He, he he said something really interesting, and it's funny how prophetic this ended up being. 
he talked about how visually and aesthetically movies had become uh, more bland, not going for anything uh, surreal or stylist or just have any style or any interesting veneer to them. And he talked about how Blade really carried that forward and how the only place you can find that in film now is comic book movies. Yeah. And, and he talked about how comic books borrowed from old cinema aesthetic for what they are. And now they're reigniting cinema by bringing that back into it. And yeah, Blade really was one of the, really stood out at the time visually and tonal wise and it's it's interesting how truly that was the beginning of comic book movies not taking over because i always kind of hate that the way that term's used when it comes to comic book movies it's always very negative but how ebert kind of called it like yeah this is the way things are going this is kind of the future well it's interesting is like i like you said that used to be just part of the way films were made but at a certain point, I guess in the 70s, when the more naturalistic stuff took hold, audiences lost how to appreciate that. So superhero movies have kind of become a Trojan horse for what's actually a very old fashioned style of storytelling. I, I, I love like it's true. You really see that like follow through into the 90s. I love Demolition Man. <laughs> for another Wesley Snipes connection. I fucking love Demolition Man. Mike it is, is one of the greatest movies series. ever made. You've been doing the series just to just to just to announce that. That's why you picked Blade, wasn't it? Yes. Oh, this is our lead into Demolition Man year. Every episode is about Demolition Man. Um, See, if I was hooked up like a DJ, I'd hit like a big reset button, and there'd be a sound of a record scratching, and then I'd redo the intro. And everyone would have just realized everything we've just discussed is garbage, and it was all lead up to our real purpose of just fawning over Demolition Man. Ooh, you, um, gotcha, bitches. But you look at Demolition Man, and it is bland looking as shit, despite supposed to being like this futuristic stylized thing. It's shot like it's a fucking random ass drama or something. Like, it's so uninteresting. <laughs> and uh, that's the kind of thing that cinema was heading towards look-wise, like, other than, like, shit by Spielberg or, you know, random auteurs like, 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 Proyas, as we mentioned, most anything was very just cookie-cutter looking. Like, it had got, like, film had gotten away from having a visual flair or style to it, especially flair style that fit the, the story that was being told. And the only people who were really trying to do something different than that up until the late nineties were like the indie people like uh, Linklater who were going in the opposite direction making things as grimy and uncinematic as possible. Like, it's kind of fascinating looking back to like this very early age of superhero movies and seeing things like the shadow and blade and just seeing it's fascinating because you're like watching a movement in cinema try to happen, but just not quite get the footing for a yeah. really long time. Yeah, I think Blade has a lot more credit to it than just kickstarting the comic book movie, but really doing something for mainstream film itself. Because a lot of those other, 
other uh, examples we mentioned were indie or a little bit lower on the food chain or uh, didn't do very well or niche or any number of you know other factors. But Blade was we wouldn't have gotten the Matrix without Blade. Oh, Blade no. was like the first foot in the door, and then Matrix was the explosion that knocked the door down. Well, I don't have any blood to toast to that, so. <laughs> here, here, Blade. That... Here, here. Get some of that blood jello from Blade 2. <laughs> or, or maybe just a cocaine. giant pack of Capri Sun. <laughs> I like how that's our sequel tease, is different types of blood. <laughs> Coming from what? box office pulp soon. Different blood. When Del Toro's in the room, who knows what shape the blood will take? Or what orifice it will come out of. <laughs> Anyways, that's been Box Office Pulp. Uh, if you would like to hear more of this, we do have future played segments coming, so pay attention for those. But we have other great things like Harry Potter commentaries, miscellaneous things, something that makes up a third part in a list. And all of it can be found on iTunes. <laughs> Stop it, guys. I'm trying to make a list. Uh, you can find all that on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. Just search for Box Office Pulp. And you can even find us on uh, Twitter. We're around. Give us, a, give us a note. We miss you. We're like your grandparents. We're just sad and alone. Wave. Give us a call. That's all it takes. Come We're easy to please. And, of course, uh, listen to Graphic Novelism, which you can find at graphicnovelism.com, and it's also on iTunes and Stitcher. There you have it, folks. That's a wrap. Get the hell out of here. Go Deacon Frost. And like that, he's gone. I, I really... You know how in the Muppet movie, Fozzie has uh, fart shoes? I want there to be a joke in one of the Blade movies where he just has blood shoes, and you just hear... <laughs> Oh, that'd be so unpleasant. You'd see the size of his boots. <laughs> Where did the vampire go? That way, and they just point out the blood trail walking down Fifth <laughs> Avenue. I like the idea of Blade getting wacky in his old age. Like, Blade has dad jokes. I could see it. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show. This meeting will come to order. The Legion of Pulp is now in session. In a moment, iTunes... Yes, Quizmotron. I was wondering, Emperor Palpatine, if I could, perhaps... Box Office Pulp thinks we need a few items to pawn on the black market. Box office pulp guy, you have a podcast dedicated to movie analysis. Pinhead, your pleasure puzzles are deadly. Isaac, you've... You've got corn! Corn? What more do you need? How about a nuclear warhead? What? All other supervillains have them. With a nuclear warhead, I shall leave all of the podcasts to tear themselves apart with paranoia. Box off his pulp wants a magic lasso to hang himself with. Can I get a ship in a bottle kit? I demand more corn. To make my own ship in a bottle. Oh, enough of this. The hell do I look like, Santa Claus? 
We're wasting valuable time. Right now, my Pope drones are rewriting Apple's code to make our podcast number one on iTunes. Excuse me, Emperor. Quizmotron, what is it? All Quizmotron wants is pants. A decent pair of pants. Darth Vader wants pants, too. Order! Order! Tune in next week at PopePodcastNetwork.wordpress.com I don't even know how I deal with any of you on a daily basis.